Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Darren Brown. This is the California Dream Weekly Roundup. And what I want to do for this week is something a little different. What I normally do is pick about two, three, or four major topics or current events and talk for a few minutes about each of them. What I want to do today is just very briefly hit upon some current events and just catch up on those and then spend uh, a bit more time talking about um, a single discussion, something I've been thinking about uh, the past few weeks, which is to try and put everything that's happening in the country, everything that's going on into kind of a wider context. It's very easy to uh, get uh, caught up in the daily back and forth of what's going on with everything happening in Washington and, you know, things that people say online and different things like that. And if you're caught up in what's happening day to day, week to week, it's really easy to lose sight of the bigger picture historically and uh, trying to keep our eyes on what's really the underlying causes of what's going on and how we need to think about it. So that's kind of what I want to do after I go through a few current events. Okay, so very briefly, um, three weeks ago, uh, we talked, and I mentioned that there was three things that um, were kind of deadlines or three items that needed to be addressed, and they weren't being addressed. So those three were the government funding deadline. So unless uh, action was taken, the government was going to shut down, the federal government. Uh, there was also the debt ceiling deadline, which is a completely artificial ceiling that's put on um, the amount of debt. And if that is not raised, then the country would default. The last deadline was um, Biden's two infrastructure bills. So the ones that are working their way through the House and the Senate and there was kind of a, a showdown. I called it a, a game of chicken between uh, most of the Democratic Party, I would say at this point, uh, in the progressive wing and uh, a handful of conservative Democrats and the Republicans. And I said that they were kind of staring each other down and uh, seeing who would blink first. So what has happened to those three items? Well, for the government funding and the debt ceiling, uh, they did what Washington often does. They just kicked it down the road uh, just a couple months, so not very long. So those were both pushed into December. There was a short-term temporary government funding given until I think it's the first week of December. And the debt ceiling um, was raised until December as well. Now, this just means that we're going to revisit these issues in a couple months. So, I mean, what is going on here? We just come back over and over again to the same things. Um, this is not a solution. And th this is what I was talking about a few weeks ago, that uh, Washington, D.C. doesn't really solve problems. It's very good at just kicking the can down the road, at procrastinating, uh, dealing with deadlines, and just trying to hand off problems to somebody else. And this is just another example of it. Um, we got a few weeks, literally just a few weeks, that uh, we can uh, breathe again on these two items. But then we'll be right back again 
um, in December, and we'll be talking about these again. So, yeah, that's what happened with those two. Now, for the infrastructure bills, I'm happy to report that the progressives did seem to flex their muscles a bit. Um, they uh, said, we have the votes to um, vote down the smaller, hard infrastructure bill. And uh, Nancy Pelosi did not bring it to the floor, um, which means she didn't have the votes and she knew she didn't have the votes. So um, as far as I'm concerned, that's a win. And uh, I'll give credit to uh, the progressives and to the House members who uh, held the line there. Um, But we're still kind of in this stage where we don't know what exactly is going to happen. Both sides are still digging in their heels. and. you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema are not really saying much. So we still don't know what's going to happen. I mean, this could go a number of different ways. We could have uh, Manchin and Cinema fold and just go along with uh, the current bill. We could have uh, we could have both sides uh, really dig their feet in, and the whole thing just goes down in flames. I said that was a possibility earlier. That just nothing gets passed. Um, maybe a more likely outcome is that there's some kind of quote unquote compromise reached. Biden's uh, bill is scaled back in some way. So they remove some some of the spending and we get some version of that bill that is not what was promised in the beginning. And that's probably the most likely outcome. I would consider that a very bad outcome. Um, as I've said earlier, they throw around this $3.5 trillion number, that's over 10 years. It's really only $350 billion per year. Just to give you a comparison, we spend more than twice that on the military every year, and it's really only between 1% and 2% of GDP. So it's not really uh, that big of a spending package. So I would consider anything more than just the very marginal cutting of corners to be um, a loss on this. But we'll see what happens. Just to sum up, uh, no resolution on any of these things uh, in the three weeks since. And who knows how they'll be resolved in the future. Just part of the uncertainty of living in this country. There is some good news that I wanted to highlight. Um, Something that uh, the mainstream media, cable news, has um, covered a little bit, but um, really hasn't uh, broken through too much. And that is that there is a wave of labor actions uh, going on across the country. Uh, It's been called Striketober. And this is really positive development. There's been a number of strikes at different companies um, all across different parts of the country, and this wave of strikes is really kind of uh, self-perpetuating. That the, the more strikes there are, the more strikes start start in other places. So just to give you an idea, just in the past month, there have been strikes at uh, John Deere factory, at uh, the Hollywood Union, the uh, IATSE. So that's kind of like everybody who works on movies and TV shows uh, in the background. So doing all the lighting and sound and uh, Everything associated with that, they've been on strike. Kellogg's company, uh, their workers are on strike. Coal miners in Alabama, nurses in Buffalo, New York, 
Um, we had employees at Kaiser Permanente in California and Oregon. Um, and then there's also been just various other small actions over the past few months. Um, carpenters, group home workers, um, different fast food places, faculty unions at colleges. So there's just a lot of uh, activity going on with unions, and unions are starting to flex their muscles and really um, have more activity than I think we've seen in decades. And uh, that's a really encouraging sign. So that's an unusual piece of good news over the past uh, month. Now, I can't mention a piece of good news without um, a corresponding piece of frightening news. So the frightening news I wanted to hit upon today is something that is actually being reported as a positive, but I see it as just the opposite, and I'm going to explain why. So what I'm talking about is recently uh, Donald Trump, um, he told his supporters, so the, the MAGA crowd, not to vote in 2022 or 2024 under some vague threat until some election integrity is solved or until the fraud in 2020 is addressed or dealt with in some fashion. Now, I looked up the coverage on this in the media, and um, the general response was, well, this is great, right? He's suppressing his own voters. So he's telling them, Huh, don't come out and vote in 2022 in the midterms. Don't come out and vote in 2024. Now, keep in mind, this is when he's pretty much advertised that he wants to be president in 2024. He's going to run. So why would he be telling people not to vote? The usual commentary I've heard on this is that this is a self-own. So he's just shooting himself in the foot. You know, why are you telling your own voters not to show up? We're, we're going to have our voters show up. Yours aren't. You're going to lose the election. Well, let's think about this a little bit more uh, deeply. If you're already questioning the outcome of elections without evidence, do you really need to rely on election results to maintain that you should take power? Okay, I want to say that one more time. If you're questioning the integrity of election outcomes without evidence, so if you're really just saying, whatever happens in an election, we're just going to question it no matter what. If we lose, it's just, it's not legitimate. We're going to manufacture doubt. We're just going to uh, question it and not accept it. Well, if that's your attitude about an election going into the election before anybody has even voted, I mean, what, what difference does the outcome make? So, you know, the, the, the response that people have about, this is great, that means we're going to get more votes. Well, that's from a perspective that you still care about elections. You're still working in the framework of democracy. You're still working in the framework that elections are important, that votes count. That's not the framework that these people are living in, okay? So, to me, this is not a positive development, the way that people are interpreting. This is, in my opinion, one of the most dangerous things that Donald Trump has ever said. Maybe the most dangerous thing. And he said a lot of dangerous things. Because, in essence, what he is saying is the 2020 election, there was voting, 
and I question the vote. In other words, I'm saying it was a fraudulent vote in that there were fraudulent votes cast. The vote count was not accurate. However, he frames that in terms of legal votes versus illegal votes or, you know, his crazy framing of things. But at least he's saying we had some voting and it was fraudulent and I question it and I don't accept it. I say that it really went the other way, despite any evidence. Well, he's moving on beyond that now. When he's telling people not to vote at all, he's not saying, oh, we're going to go out and vote. And, you know, when it doesn't go our way, it's going to be fraudulent and we're going to question it. He's just saying, just let's not vote at all. In other words, what he's saying is, we have given up on democracy. We don't believe in it. The election system is so corrupted, is so fraudulent, that it's not even worth participating in. The integrity is so low that we can just bypass it altogether. What he's saying is, well, if you agree with that, if you agree that elections are so corrupted that you, know, you can't trust them at all, if you agree that um, voting is a waste of time and that we just shouldn't do it, well, how do you determine who runs a society? How do you determine who is in charge of government? I'll let you think about that. Well, the way you determine it is might. If elections and voting don't determine who should be in charge of a country, who should be in charge of a government, then basically it's just might makes right. It's just force of will. And this is what's so dangerous about what he's saying, because this is fascism. Fascism is not just a rejection of liberalism, a rejection of socialism, a rejection of the left. Fascism is a rejection of conservatism as well. That's something people really don't think about. It's not just that it's a far-right ideology. It doesn't just reject the left. It rejects the left and the right. It rejects liberalism. It rejects democracy. But it also rejects conservatism. It rejects traditionalism. It rejects all of it. It just rejects everything and just says, everything is so corrupt, the only way we can move forward is someone needs to come in and just be a strong man and just take care of things and just be in charge and just impose their will on everything. And that's kind of the fascist blueprint. And this is what he's saying. I mean, he's saying it out loud. We don't believe in democracy. We don't believe in voting. I mean, what's the implication from that? I mean, I ask this as a serious question. If 2024 comes around and like a third of the country thinks the elections are so corrupted that we can't trust them, we still have to decide who's going to run the country. How's that going to be determined? Do you see the kind of direction that we're heading in? I mean, I really want you to think about this. So this is not a positive development, I'm saying this. This is very bad. This is a dangerous development. You have to see the context of what people are saying. Okay, so for the main discussion I wanted to have today, I wanted to go over kind of a bigger picture of where we are. How did we get where we are? And how does California fit into that? Because it's very difficult um, 
there's all these things that happen day to day, week to week that uh, grab your attention. Somebody says something. There's some fight on uh, Capitol Hill going on in Washington. There's, you know, violence happening different places. There's uh, things in social media. So there's a lot of things to grab your attention um, and talk about. But I think it's important to step back and take a, a bigger look at what's going on. So that's kind of what I want to do for a few minutes. So one way to interpret history, I think that's useful, is to view it as kind of there are waves of progress and waves of reactionary backlash. So we'll make a couple steps in the direction of progress, and then there's a backlash to it, and maybe we take a step or two back. And it kind of goes back and forth like this, because every time that there's progress made, there's inevitably people who feel that they're losing out, and they may be losing out, or they feel threatened, and so there's a backlash to it. And one of the clearest examples of this, I think, was um, after the Civil War, uh, there was a Reconstruction, which was working for a few years. Um, there was a lot of progress made, and then there was a very large reactionary backlash to it. And this gave rise to Ku Klux Klan, Jim Crow South, basically the election of 1876, which had a disputed election result. And the result of that was uh, what's called the Compromise of 1877, in which the, uh, the Democrats in the South said, okay, we'll accept the Republican president. Uh, we'd rather not do that, but we will. If you basically agree to roll back Reconstruction, just let's just stop Reconstruction. Um, we're, just let us to run our own affairs, which you know, is basically saying let's just kind of go back to the way we were before the Civil War. So that's, I think, the clearest example of a reactionary backlash. Where I want to start, though, is um, the Great Depression, World War II. So in 1929, the stock market crashed, and there was really... Uh, a crisis of capitalism. It's the biggest economic crisis that we've had. And there were two directions that we had to go, um, two directions that we could have chosen to go. Fortunately, we ended up choosing uh, the right direction out of the two. So the choices were we could go uh, in the far right direction towards fascism, which is what happened in uh, a few countries in Europe. The other choice was the choice that we chose, which was kind of a compromise between capital and labor, the New Deal, uh, the kind of social democratic uh, program that was put in place. We had things like Social Security, unemployment benefits, um, jobs program, a lot of new programs that were put into place that um, really addressed the crisis and helped a lot of people and really ameliorated a lot of the tensions that were going on. Um, we could have gone a much different direction. Let's say if FDR hadn't done a lot of the things that he had done, um, we could have seen something like what happened in Russia. I think that was a possibility. Um, or we could have seen something like what happened in Germany. So those are two kind of ends of the spectrum of what could have happened. And we kind of chose a middle path. Um, not really addressing the, the root causes, I think, of what's going on, but making some major programs and concessions to, to deal with the suffering that a lot of people were feeling. Now, a lot of people did not like this. Um, almost immediately, 
uh, the business class and capital was not happy with what happened because there was a lot of power that went to labor. And after World War II, um, there was a meeting, and a lot of people don't know about this meeting. Um, so it was called the Mont Pelerin Society. This was in 1947. And uh, two of its founders were Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman. Now, you may have heard of both of those names because in the 1970s, both Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman were awarded the Nobel Prize in economics. That should tell you all you need to know about economics as a discipline, by the way. The fact that those two could win Nobel Prizes in economics. So Friedrich Hayek was um, one of the founders of the Austrian School of Economics. Uh, it's a very libertarian uh, approach to economics. And Milton Friedman was um, the main uh, guy who was involved in what's called the Chicago School of Economics. It's called neoclassical economics. And it was a return to something called monetarism. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. But these two were um, two of the founders of this Mont Pelerin Society, and they had a vision for the economy. They had a vision for society that was uh, directly opposed to what came out of the New Deal, what came out of all of the programs that FDR did. And it wasn't just a, a vision, it was a, an organization. So they began building kind of organizational structures, um, and they had a lot of money behind them. And they also developed uh, an academic foundation or philosophical foundation uh, to justify their vision. So they proposed um, this new school of economics called uh, monetarism, which was more focused on monetary policy as opposed to fiscal policy. So monetary policy is basically setting interest rates. So the, the central bank will decide what uh, the, the rate of interest should be, and it's a way of kind of managing the economy that way, and it's a little bit more hands-off approach as opposed to fiscal policy, which says we really have a lot more uh, fiscal space that we can spend into the economy and uh, we can spend and tax and so on. So Keynes, Keynesian economics, was kind of the uh, foundation of a lot of the New Deal programs. And so this was a direct attack upon Keynesian economics. Now, Keynesian economics um, you know, can be criticized and um, is not you know, necessarily the be-all, end-all of everything. But the point I'm making is that they had this program that was directly opposed to that and challenged it. And that was their program that they set out to do. This was in the late 1940s. So you can see this is almost immediately after the New Deal, immediately after World War II. They recognized that this is what they needed to do. Then we come to the 1960s. And there was another kind of wave of progress. So there's this, this wave of progress in the 30s. And there was another kind of wave of progress in the 60s. This one had a little bit different flavor. You know, it was um, more towards social issues. There was different identity groups that began to assert their, their rights. Um, you know, women, LGBTQ, minorities. So there was uh, a democratic opening in that um, a lot more people were asserting themselves as being involved in the democratic process 
We also had the Great Society, so there was an extension of many of the economic programs that were developed during the New Deal. And this really uh, scared the crap out of uh, capital, scared the crap out of uh, the business class. And they realized that they really needed to get their act together um, because they realized that labor and the left was just much more organized than them. And so that's exactly what they started to do. They kind of uh, picked up where the Mont Pelerin Society left off and um, began developing a whole network of think tanks and institutions and started funding all these different organizations. Um, and this is all laid out. It's, uh, the reason I'm saying this, it's not like I'm uh, speculating about what happened. There was a memorandum written by Lewis Powell, who would uh, later go on to be on the Supreme Court. In fact, he went on the court almost immediately after the memo was written. So he wrote this memorandum in 1971. It's called the Powell Memorandum. Uh, you can look it up and read it. And they basically lay out this, this plan. They say, you know, there's too many people involved in the democratic process. Um, these people don't know how to run society. They don't know what's good for them. Labor has too much power. Uh, there's too many consumer protections. There's too many regulations. We need to roll all of this back. We need to go back to the way we were in the 1920s or even before that when there were robber barons and uh, basically little or no oversight of corporations and uh, very little regulations. That's what we need to do. And they laid out this, this blueprint in this memorandum of how they were going to do that. And the year after he wrote it, uh, he was appointed to the Supreme Court by Richard Nixon. He served for 15 years. And he was very influential uh, on the court and just in the conservative movement in general. And so what we saw is by the time we get to 1980, this kind of movement that had been building through the late 40s, the Mont Pelerin Society, and then really started to organize really strongly in the 1970s with the Powell Memorandum and a lot of money behind it really came to its culmination in the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. And this was kind of the, uh, the peak of the backlash. So even up through Nixon, Nixon was obviously a conservative, but um, he was really constrained by Congress and popular movements and social movements. And he actually signed a, a number of really good legislation. And his economics, he was still, you know, pretty much in the New Deal economics camp, um, at least compared to what we have today. So everyone from FDR up through, I would say, Nixon, all the presidents bought into um, the Keynesian New Deal economics framework. Even someone like a Republican, like uh, Eisenhower, publicly stated, Eisenhower said, if you don't believe in the New Deal, if you're not a Keynesian, if you don't believe in um, FDR's programs that were put in place, you basically don't belong in American politics. I mean, that was a Republican saying that in the 50s. Now we get to the 70s, and there's this organizing, and really the, the, the turning point is Carter. Carter really started to adopt some of these, what are now called neoliberal policies. So these economic policies that are going against the Keynesians, against the kind of direction that FDR took. And Reagan then just accelerated that, you know, a mile a minute. And so that is the world that we've been living in pretty much ever since for the last 40 to 45 years is this 
world of what we now call neoliberal economics, this kind of uh, conservative libertarian view on free market capitalism that thinks that uh, it's good to privatize, deregulate, um, it's very into free trade and globalization, kind of austerity. We need to um, cut back on public spending, especially for you know things that would benefit ordinary people. Um, we need to move everything to the private sector and just you know let the let the free market uh, determine how things are run. Um, that's where the liberal comes from. It's not the left right spectrum. The liberal comes from um, you liberalize the economy. In other words, you you let uh, it's economic liberalization, not political liberalization. So that's why it's called neoliberal economics. So this was um, really started uh, in full with Ronald Reagan. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just in America. Uh, this was something that happened really throughout the entire world. Um, one of the really devastating um, applications of it was in Chile in 1973, um, where they had Pinochet. Uh, basically, by force, they came in and installed him. And he had uh, these neoliberal economic reforms that were just devastating for that country. And in the UK, there was Margaret Thatcher. She had very similar ideology and very similar um, program. And what was really the depressing thing is that this was started by Republicans, but unfortunately, the Democratic Party basically just adopted the same neoliberal mindset. So... They kind of had a little bit softer version of it, but they really kind of threw out uh, the old Keynesian New Deal economics as well. And so since Reagan, we've had this change of parties back and forth, Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat. But they basically agreed on the philosophical foundations of their economic program. They basically have all these same assumptions, the same patterns of thought about how the economy should be run. And really, they've succeeded. So they, they won. So all those people back in the uh, late 40s at the Mont Pelerin Society, Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, uh, Lewis Powell in the early 70s with his memorandum, um, they set out this blueprint about what they wanted to do, and it's done. They did it. It's over. And that's kind of why we're in the place where we are right now is they won the fight, they got their policies implemented, and they've been devastating for people. We've never had lower unionization rates. Um, we've had widening gap between uh, productivity and wages. Uh, we've had widening inequality, income inequality, wealth inequality. And it's just gotten harder and harder for people to get by. And that is what's producing the politics that we're seeing right now. So that's what you have to understand about what's going on. Why do we have so much division? Why are we seeing the kind of conflict between different segments of society? Why do we have dysfunctional government? Why are all of these things happening around us? It's because this conservative backlash to the New Deal and to the Great Society has won, and they've put in place their program, and we've been living with it for 40 to 50 years, 
And this is, this is the result. We're living in the results of their success. And the thing to understand is that this cannot go on forever. So this is a failed program. Nobody believes in this neoliberal ideology anymore. Uh, I mean, among ordinary people, they just they don't believe it anymore. It hasn't delivered the goods. It's delivered bads for people. And so when the dominant economic ideology for 40 or 50 years cannot hold, it doesn't have support, and nobody believes it anymore, something has to take the place of that. Something has to fill that void. And there's really only two directions you can go. Um, I mean, to be crass about it, you can go left or you can go right. You can try and straddle the middle. That's, I guess, what uh, Biden is trying to do. Uh, there's still a handful of people who are still trying to do this. But as you can see, it's becoming increasingly harder and harder to maintain that there's some, some way that you can hold the middle, that you can really explain that to people and have them believe you. You got to go one of two directions. You either have to go in a left direction that's at the very least, let's say, social democratic. So you have to start to give more power to labor, more power to unions. You have to scale back this uh, privatization and lack of spending on public purpose. You need things like Medicare for all, um, a jobs program. You need much more investment by the government into the economy and into ordinary people. Uh, at the very least, you know, some social democratic reforms. I mean, a lot of people would then want to go beyond that. You know, a lot, that's why you see a lot of people questioning capitalism itself. You know, a lot of people identifying, self-identifying as socialist is because they want to go even further beyond that. So that's one direction you can go. That's kind of the direction that we went in during the Great Depression. And so that, that's a direction we could go again. Or you could go the other direction. So instead of having an explanation that there's a system-wide problem, that the problem is, is the system, that there's something that's not working in the economic system, the political system, that it's not really individuals that you can blame, but it's the whole structure of what's going on. And you can point to individuals, but you really have to understand what's going on with the structure of it and work to change the structure of the society and the structure of the political and economic system. That's kind of difficult to explain to people, though. It's much easier to go the other direction, as I said, to go to the right, where the explanations are very simple and very digestible. Your problems are due to immigrants. Your problems are due to outsiders. Your problems are due to uh, leftists and socialists who are taking away all your tax money. There's always someone to blame, right? We need to return to this mythical time when everything was better, when we had uh, traditional values. Democracy isn't really working, as you can see. So we need a strong man to come in. That's, that's the rightward direction, right? Blame an outsider, blame immigrants, blame minorities, blame people who don't have power and say that you have the solutions, you can come in and be a strong man, an authoritarian, and you can solve the problems. We don't really need democratic norms or democratic institutions because those have failed us, and so we need to go this new direction, okay? That's the direction of fascism. So those are the two directions, and this is playing out all over the world right now. 
It's not just the United States. It's everywhere. You can see it. Poland, Hungary, Brazil, um, the UK, India. There is this tension that the middle is not holding. And people are either turning to the left or the right. This is the fight that we're in. And this is this is what's going on in America right now. And my fear is that people don't really understand this threat in terms of this historical context. And they don't really understand, you know, what the consequences are of not dealing with it. There is a real fascist movement in the United States. If you don't see that by now, uh, it has to be because you're just not looking. You don't want to look. You don't want to see it because the warning signs have been flashing red over and over again for at least the past year and a half and really the past five to 10 years. And this is why in the previous episode, when I was talking, I framed California independence as an anti-fascist movement. Now, I know that there's a lot of people who will say, well, it's fine, you're anti-fascist, but we should, um, we should not abandon the rest of the country. The best way to fight fascism would be to remain within the country and work to fight it from within. And I kind of understand that sentiment, but I think we're kind of past that a bit. I would say that the horse is already out of the barn, at least in America. I don't think it can be put back. And so if you still think you know, the best way to fight this right-wing authoritarianism, the best way to fight this fascism is to stay in the U.S. and work within American politics and, and, try, and try and change it that way, try and fight it that way. My question would be, you know, how far does it have to go before you abandon that? We already have one of the two major political parties in America who is declaring that they've given up on elections, they've given up on democracy, they don't believe in democratic norms and institutions. I mean, how bad does it have to get? We've already seen that California has taken to just ignoring many federal policies. What if it came to a point where there was someone, either Trump or some other authoritarian, who did come to power in the United States, who did explicitly say, nah, Constitution, who cares? Elections, who cares? We're just going to do, we have power, we're going to do what we want to do and live with it. And then what if they started to impose those policies, they started to impose their vision of society on California? I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, at that point, resistance to me is tantamount to independence. If the political structure of the United States degrades to a point where it's effectively authoritarian, effectively fascist, and you claim to be anti-fascist and you're against it, how can you do that without saying, we're just got to separate completely from this? That the best way to fight this is just to say, we don't accept your authority. I mean, which is what independence is. Independence is a way of saying, we do not accept your legitimacy. We do not accept your authority. How bad does it have to get before you get to that point? How bad would it have to get before you would say, okay, we do not accept this as a legitimate government. We do not accept this as legitimate authority because we are being told to submit to 
a government that doesn't even believe in democracy, that doesn't believe in democratic principles. Why should you submit authority to someone that doesn't believe in democracy? It doesn't make any sense. So there has to be a limiting point. I think the only difference between me and a lot of other people is that I just think we've already reached that point. It's already gotten so bad that I've kind of crossed over to the other side. Maybe other people don't recognize that we've reached that point, or maybe maybe they just don't uh, see where we are completely at the moment. But that's kind of the way I see it, is that we've already passed the Rubicon. Like I said, the, the horse is out of the barn. I don't think it's getting put back in. And so I just think we should start preparing for what I think is going to be inevitable to happen. And if you still want to try and fight this within uh, the United States system, uh, I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to say, you know, I'm always going to be supportive of people fighting fascism and authoritarianism and fighting the right wing inside America. But I just think it's kind of a fruitless endeavor at this point. It's not going to be very long before that's just not a tenable way to deal with this problem. And I think it's coming sooner than later. I think it's coming by the 2024 election. I don't see how we get through the next presidential election. I just don't see it happening. And if you don't agree with me, I would just ask that you think about a lot of the things I've talked about in this podcast and a lot of what um, we've gone over that's happened the past couple of years. And just ask yourself, what direction could this go? I don't see that it's possible to repair, and that's why I think we need to, to think in these terms. All right, so that was kind of my um, big-picture historical discussion about what's going on and, and where I see California independence in relation to everything going on. So I hope you found it interesting. Um, I hope maybe you think about it. Maybe you agree with some of it. Maybe you don't agree with other parts. But uh, at least I hope I got you thinking about what's going on right now and maybe a different framework with which to think about the events that are happening on a day-to-day and week-by-week, month-by-month basis. All right, that's all for me this week. Have a good week, and I'll talk to you later.